press the bell icon on YouTube and don't miss another update. Namaste viewers. Thank you for joining the Jaipur Dialogue USA. Uh, I apologize for the delay. There was some issue with reference to technical aspects of sound and video. We have fixed it. We are on with it now. So to begin with, I wanted to request all the viewers to like, subscribe, press the bell icon and support us. The super chat is on. So if you have any questions to ask, please do ask. Now, today we are going to talk about the world we live in, as we know now. The world is in an amazing place of conflict and uh, confusion going on for one issue or the other. War in Ukraine, coronavirus related, huge trust deficit, the multinational corporations and doing things. There's a tremendous amount of conflict going on. Sometimes it feels that Sanatan Dharma probably offers the solutions to these crises. To discuss this today, I have the greatest of pleasure in welcoming somebody who is known as the Western master of Eastern wisdom. And I call him, I replace the word Eastern wisdom to Sanatani wisdom, Jeffrey Armstrong, also known as Kavindra Rishi. And Kavi Indra and Rishi has all the meanings for all those people who understand the meaning of the name. You can know what it is. So Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining from Vancouver. And you are 7.30 a.m. in the morning. So even happy morning. Namaskar. So Pranam Wonderful to see you and to everyone. Yes, thank you. You know, I was with you a few days ago on your show when you were discussing with some of your, uh, you know, about more than 40 people, of which there were three Indians there. I noticed the Indian names. And uh, you were discussing chapter 16. And it was fabulous for me to, you know, as a follower of Bhagavad Gita, you know, I have been, I have a small book here, Bhagavad Gita, which I read every day, two shlokas here. And uh, I, I, I know, I came to know that you have written the decolonized Bhagavad Gita for the first time. That's a marvelous word, primarily for the reason that Indian mind has been colonized for such a long time that that itself is a major discussion on most of the social media, that the we Indians of 21st century, we still have a remnants of colonialization in the way we treat ourselves. So I love the word when you said, the first ever decolonized translation of Bhagavad Gita. And I, re I recall you talked about the Sanskrit word, the language, and how it impacts. So I want you to share. I'm, as you can see, I'm very excited. I'm a classic learner. I love to be a learner because only in the company of gurus and teachers like you that one can learn. And learning is a never-ending process. So I, I invite you to share your thoughts on what you call the new translation of Bhagavad Gita as a decolonized translation. And I recall you saying that how the Sanskrit got translated into local language, then to English, and the words got substituted. And because the, the, the Western world brought the education back to India, we got colonized with our words rendered aside, and we are learning the English words. Jeffrey. It is the dilemma, my friend. In fact, the way I describe Sanskrit is it is a programming language. It was actually the basis of programming languages. Most people don't know. I worked in Silicon Valley and most people don't know that binary mathematics, the Boolean logic that makes technology possible came from the Rig Veda where the ones and zeros logic was extracted from a verse in the, the uh, not from the Bhagavad Gita, but from the Rig Veda. Did I say Gita? Rig Veda. Comes from the Rig Veda. Right. Uh, and the ones and zeros technology. So what we call Western science is really Samkhya from Bharat. And our language, the English language, is a very messy language. In fact, the English poets, Shakespeare and others like him, their poetry was useless 300 years after they wrote it. The language of English had drifted so far 
from the language during Shakespeare's time. So linguistic drift, the drifting away of meaning over time is the center of what you were just talking about. Samskritam is designed so it does not drift over any amount of time. That's, uh, you know, tell us more about it because you use the word, many words you used about it. I This show is not about me chatting away. This, this show is designed for you to share the new Bhagavad Gita. How do you call it decolonized and what are the important elements of it that we must know? Because we are le reading all translation works and uh, translation work is always lost in translation, as I always say. So, so, Absolutely. Well, let's use one word in Sanskrit that will help us. And for that word, let's look at it. A verse from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 10, verse 13. Chapter 10, verse 9, right, 10, verse 13. 13. Um, sarvam yes. etat ritam yeah. manye yadmam vadasi keshava. Nahite Bhagavan Vyaktim Vidur Deva Nadanavaha. O Sri Krishna, I know that all the wisdom you are giving me contains the deepest truths on which the Ritam of this world rests. O Bhagavan, neither the Devas nor the Asuras truly understand how you are manifest within all that exists. Right. So let's use this verse as an example. The, the pivotal word is ritam. There is no English equivalent to ritam. And the ri in ritam, which is really the dotted Sanskrit R, is the same ri that's present, that is the root of dharma, dri. And karma, kri. Yet, we continue, I continue to hear people say, our Hindu religion. Well, the good news is that the English word religion has re in it. But if you look up the meaning of the English word religion in an etymological dictionary, it refers you to the word ligament. The English word religion is derived from the English word ligament. The ligaments are what hold our body together at the joints. So that's just a very distant reflection of the ri. The ri or the ritam is the basis of the cosmos because that ritam is all of the codes called the laws of nature in English, that are the necessary precursor and the proof that an intelligence constructed the cosmos. And that an intelligence constructed the cosmos is then carried forward in that word ritam. Now that word is buried in English. Reading, writing, rhythmic. Rhythm, rhyme, all of those are re, religion, re, the Sanskrit re. Nobody speaking English knows they're speaking Sanskrit. But the rita is the basis of all of this. And the re became the dri. Now that dri traveled to England a few years back few hundred years back, thousand years back, back to the Celts before the English. And it became the English word tree. And tree is something that stands straight and tall for itself, for its nature and bears fruit. So from tree came the English word truth which is tree-uth. 
and triuth or truth in English is actually from the dri of Sanskrit and the dri of Dharma. And what does Dharma mean? It means understanding the essential nature of everything and using it appropriately and then standing correctly in relationship to the ritam. So what is a ritual then in English? It's Agnihotra. Yajna is a ritual. So now watch this one. So it's four different places in the Bhagavad Gita, a particular interesting word is used. That word is going to be borrowed by the colonialists because they don't have one. So the ritual is when we do the Agnihotra Yajna and what we're doing is saying thank you to the devas so we're saying thank you to the devas and we're promising to work cooperatively with them. The thank you is for the food that we're about to eat, which we're first offering to them to say thank you for creating it for us. Oh, create has the re in there too, doesn't it? Well, the Sanskrit is everywhere. <laughs> Could it be from procreate and prakriti? Could it be that prakriti is the same re? Prakriti, pra to produce, create by cause and effect, by chains of cause and effect, et again and again and again. Could it be that prakriti? Prakriti is the rule of this place there where we're living, this jagat. Ja meaning birth, that which moves forward, got, by birth and death. So if we're here inside prakriti, and we use any other word than explaining the Sanskrit like I'm doing right now, we just lost control of the conversation. We use a couple of English words. The Sanskrit's not visible, but wait, we were at the yajna. So the yajna is going on and the hotri is about to make the offering into Agni, into the mouth of Agni. And the offering is made, thank you. And the smoke comes up. What is that smoke called? Do you remember? Hutam. And Hutam entered into German because German is based on Sanskrit and not Latin. So Hutam became Gutam. In Dutch, it became Gut, and in English, it became God. So the English word God is actually the smoke arising from a Vedic Agni Hotra Yajna. Now, how many Christians know that? How many English speakers know that? That the pagan fire sacrifice the Christians hated so much and the Muslims is actually the ritam at work and the smoke arising is the hutam. Brahmarpanam, Brahma Agnau, Brahma Hutam, Krishna says in the Gita. I am this, I am that, I am that, I am that. All of this is unknown in the current conversation. So this means that the people from India, from Bharat, trying to describe their culture, don't know how to conduct the conversation and show the roots in Sanskrit. Now you asked me to explain how. There are six sciences in the Veda that are the basis of the Veda moving forward in history. And they are called the Veda Angas, the limbs of the Veda. Yes? Yes. And the first of them is about the light descending from Brahman to the realm of Prakriti. So that's called Jyotish. 
the Jyoti is descending. And chapter 7, verse 19, Bhagavad Gita, Bahunam Janmanamanti, Nyanavan Mam Prapadyate, Vasudeva Sarvam Iti, Samahatma Sudur Labaha. After many lifetimes in the pursuit of jnana, one finally comes to understand Vasudeva Sarvam Iti. That Bhagavan is the source of everything. Samahatma, such a far-seeing atma is very rare. Not soul, atma, which gives us the word atomic, which used to mean you can't cuddle. Atome in Latin. You see what I'm doing? Yes. <laughs> I'm taking charge of the conversation. Now back to the Veda Angas. What makes Sanskrit Sanskrit? I hear everyone arguing about this. In, in the Tamil Nadu, they say ours is older. Yes, but it's not as perfect. What do you mean? <laughs> I mean perfect. Perfect for what? Nobody knows. Perfect for not getting distorted as it's passed forward through time. So in Jyotish is the first of the Veda Angas. I've been a Jyotishi since 1973 when I studied under a guru from Bharat. And so I understand Jyotishi. It is the science of Brahman descending into Prakriti and of the various distributions of that energetic control so that Bahunam Janmanamante, after many, many births in the pursuit, well, those many, many births are here, us, in the Prakriti from life to life in the what I call university. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now that Agnihotri Yagya we were doing happens to be one of the other Veda Angas, doesn't it? It's called Kalpa. Kalpa means rituals. Well, what is science? Science is a series of rituals. Process. Science is Process. adhering to the Ritam. So rituals are science. You have to do the same thing again and again the right way in order to get the right result. Why? Because we're in Prakriti. We're in the place where everything is chains of cause and effect. And unless you act according to those chains of cause and effect, nothing happens correctly. So watch what we're doing. Jyotish is at the top. At the bottom, where the tires hit the pavement, is kalpa, which means the ritualized way of extracting energy from prakriti, which is otherwise known nowadays as ecology. That's right. How do we know? What is the last step of the Agnihotri Yajna? What is the last thing you do? It's called the Ahuti. Am I right? What is Ahuti? Offering. Ah, you see, that is a marvelous answer. Because we have all forgotten the last step. Because we've all been colonized. And we're just extracting energy from the planet. But we're not giving back. The last step is if you don't put the ashes from the fire back in the garden, there'll be no minerals in the earth to grow the next year's crops. So the last step of the Agnihotri Yajna is the final cooperation with the devas where we put the ashes into the soil because the ashes contain the minerals that are necessary to make the vitamins in our food and this is the problem China had historically. They only had two rivers. So they had trouble with not having enough nutrients in their soil. And they had horrible famines because of it. So in the, now we know two of the Veda Angas, the top one and the one where the tires hit the pavement. What's in between? The four Vedangas that pertain to the Sanskrit language remaining perfect 
and not being altered from generation to generation. And the first of those is the necessary phonetics. What is that called? Shiksha. And then the next is the necessary meaning of the words. Nirukta, etymology. There are 2,212 roots to the Sanskrit language. And then the Ashtadhyay of Panini, 4,000 grammatical rules. My professor of Samskritam, who was a Benares pundit, had memorized all 4,000 of those grammatical rules. That's Pandita. You would say something in Sanskrit, he'd say rule number 2,221, if this, then this, and that. <clears throat> that's called Vyakarana. That's the grammar of Sanskrit. And what is the last one? And how many beats is that? How many phonemes is that? Eight times three. Gayatri meter or Gayatri chandas. So it turns out that chandas, nirukta, vyakarana, and shiksha are the four sciences that are precise and unchanging that have empowered Sanskrit to move forward through time without becoming distorted. Now, how many Hindus do you think can say what I just said to explain their culture to Western civilization? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what it is fascinating, you know, like you gave the enunciation of the Prakriti. Now, who would have thought that Prakriti is procreation and how the word re has got into everything in the, in the English language, how they borrowed it. That And you mentioned about China, the river and the translation, you know, like the ashes, for example, unless they are given back to earth. Minerals don't develop. So I was talking about Ahuti. You took one step forward of the ashes, that is me, Vibhuti, goes into the planet Earth. So on the Earth. So that's that's beautiful. And here is what I wanted to bring the conversation back to the to where we are today. Because one of the things that I learned in my way back in 1983, uh, uh, an Indian scholar, management consultant, and Ivy League educated told us in Bankers Club in Bangalore that Indians do not need to go to America to study management. All the management tools, life mm -hmm. lessons, everything is there in our own scriptures. Study them, don't read. Now, my, my inquiry with you was, Mr. Kavindraji, if I may say so, how you got enticed and got interested in it and devoted your entire life to this. At what point in time that, to use the American slang, you flipped? <laughs> uh, well, that's why I quoted my favorite verse, Bahunam Janmanamati. At age 13, I wrote my first poem. I went to a carnival that night. Just, I was just a young man growing up in the Detroit area. Parents were not special, no special education. They were not horrible, they were not special. They were just middle-class white people and vanilla Christians, but they didn't really care about it much. But I went to church each week and I asked questions they didn't like. But suddenly it occurred to me, something occurred to me. And I wrote a poem <clears throat> and it said, life is like a carnival filled with dirty little men grubbing for pennies, offering cheap thrills to stupid people who lead empty, meaningless lives. And when I look in the mirror, I see not one person, but two. And I wonder which one is really me. Bahunam Jan Manamante. I started waking up at 13 from my previous lives in Bharat. From my previous lives as a yogi. And who knows why Bhagavan decided to toss me down and 
Detroit, Michigan. But it worked because I looked around and said, something is terribly wrong. And I started searching. And of course, I went to university. It took me a while till I was in university to really get the momentum of that search going. And finally, everything that I read, everything I studied led back to Bart. I got a degree in psychology. All the psychologists were just taking knowledge from Bart and coming up with a theory. Every one of the psychological theories is just a changed form of it. And therefore, William Sheldon, for example, one of the most famous psychologists, uh, invented something called uh, mesomorph, endomorph, ectomorph. Do you know what those are? No, I'm not sure. Please tell us. Mesomorph is medium build, muscular, strong. Oh, okay. And endomorph is more carrying weight, round, soft-bodied, and so forth. And ectomorph is tall, skinny, nervous, high-strung. What did we just say? Yeah. Vata Pitakafa? Yes, yes. Oh, William Sheldon developed an entire theory of psychology around Vata Pitakafa. Mm -hmm. Volumes of work on it. Everyone who learns psychology in the West learns not Vata Pitakafa, endomorph, ectomorph, mesomorph. Nobody tells them it came from India. Nobody tells them it's the basis of Ayurveda. No one tells them it's the basis of the construction of the body. So as I began, all these fragments of Vedic knowledge are all spread throughout Western science, in the mathematics, in the physics, in the psychology, in the philosophy, through the German philosophers, they've all been drifting through. The truth is that for a thousand, two thousand years, even Abrahamic religions, you know who Abraham and Sarah really are? Brahma and Saraswati. The Abrahamic religions are from the original couple, according to them, which is Abraham and Sarah. That's Brahma and Saraswati. They just twisted it. So Western religion is from India, is from the Veda. Judaism is, Islam is, Christianity is, Vedic knowledge was passed down the Silk Road. I just read an article about a thousand years ago, 300 Vedic texts, Sanskrit texts, went down the Silk Road to China and were translated into Chinese. Whoever told us this in school? Who told us that Sanskrit is the most perfect language and that because of it, down the Silk Road, knowledge of India was disseminated, became the three Abrahamic religions, became everybody's languages, got scattered all across Europe. What do we call the people for the northern part of Europe? Scandinavians, huh? Is that Skanda? Skanda, yeah, Skanda, yeah, that's right, yeah. They're the Scandinavians. They're descended from Kardikeya. What about the Russians? Oh, you mean the Rishis? The Rishians, where the Rishis used to build ashrams in Siberia, so no one would bother them. <laughs> what about the Irish? I mean, the Aryans, the Irish, the Iries. Sanskrit this is, is this, is, this is so so amazing. This is so so amazing, and you are you very correctly and ask this question. How many Indians themselves know this? And here is, as a, as a student of geopolitics, and I believe in realism uh, to a great extent, as in addition to the spiritual streak that we all have, is what good is the knowledge if we don't act on it? I can be sitting on a storehouse of knowledge and we don't act on it. And that was that's what bothers me. How did we allow, how did we let with so much deep knowledge, the truth, actually it is truth that was here. How did we allow this to get distorted by all kinds of marauders who invaded us for our rich and wealth? You know, this is something which bothers me a lot. And, uh, you, know, you know, teachings of Bhagavad Gita and everything else, that even war is an essential part of a dharmic life. How did we become so unwarrior-like that we considered 
ceded and gave up territories and knowledge and distortions affect us. Even today, Indians lament, and I hate it, and I chide people who say that. Oh, we have been ruled for thousands of years. That's why we are like that. I said, why the hell did we let it happen? <laughs> we need to answer that question. Why did we let that happen to us? Where was our knowledge and wisdom? Your thoughts on it? Well, I have to just embarrass you slightly and say I used that word too for a long time, but not anymore. Tell me what the word spiritual means. Let's have. Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. Absolutely. Because, you know, this is the one which leads us to another conversation on this matter. And I would like you to address that because you have said that it is India is going to colonize the world. You know, like, so our spiritual journey has to begin to colonize the world. Is that why Islamic faith and the Christian faith are attacking Hindus who remain an unfinished business? Actually, what I was pointing out is you shouldn't use the word spiritual because there's no meaning to it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We, we all like to be called spiritual, yes. But what does it mean? Spirit. Spiritual. What is the actual literal dictionary meaning? Oh, uh, well, I, we all know esoterically what it means, but then no, it's something beyond religion. I put it, uh, my definition is beyond religion. Or yes, but you can't make up definitions. I'm, I'm going to show you something here. Sure. You're thinking you get to make up definitions. That's what dictionaries are for. <laughs> okay. You can't make up definitions. Because if you make them up, then nobody knows what you really meant. Because only you know your definition. Right. So spiritual means to breathe. It's called inspiration and expiration. It doesn't mean anything more than that. It has no other meaning. So when somebody tells me they're spiritual, I say, I'm glad you're breathing, but I still have no clue what you stand for or what you're thinking. Well, you say, well, but, you know, it's spiritual. No, I don't know. Tell me more. Do you mean Brahman? Do you mean Prakriti? Because Prakriti is air. Is that, are you, do you mean Pranayam? What do you mean? So this, I want to answer your question by showing you that even the most sincere have not taken the trouble to become scientific in programming their speech with precise meanings. And in the absence of that precision, everything becomes mush. I'll give you an example. Give me the English translation, please, the standard one. Asatoma Sadgamaya. Now you're testing me on my translation abilities. <laughs> no, just the standard one for everyone. Hmm. What is the usual translation of that? Not just you. Asato masadgamaya. Asato masadgamaya. I can't translate it as of now, my inability to do so. From, the un from that which is unreal, lead us to that which is real. Asat is yeah. translated unreal. So, do you believe that the world around you is unreal? Is my cup of tea unreal? Yes. No. If it's unreal, how could I just take a sip out of it? So the translation is completely wrong. It's not unreal. Asat doesn't mean unreal. But you just ruined the Sanskrit by doing that. If you said it means unreal, you're stuck. Because now you deny the reality of the world. And if the world's not real, how can we even be here? How can we even proceed? How can we even go forward? The word real gives us real estate. It means what? Well, it actually means of the land. You know, rostra. So, asat does not mean unreal. It means from that which is only temporarily manifest and true, lead me to that which is always manifest and true. That's much closer than from the unreal lead me to the real.
So now think for a moment, what happens when Vedanta comes into English then? What happens to Achintya when it comes into English? There is no English equivalent. So I want to show you the secret. There is no synonym, and this is the word in English for the Sanskrit word Dharma. There is no synonymity, no equivalency between the Sanskrit word Dharma and any word in English. There is no one word translation. A, a group of words can approximate the Sanskrit. But there is no one-to-one -one word of translation between the Sanskrit terms, which are deep in understanding and meaning. So I'm giving you the essence of the problem. The problem is we are not reprogramming the colonizers. We're speaking of ourselves the way they taught us to. We're speaking ignorantly the way they taught us to. Instead of teaching them the vocabulary of Sanskrit. With clear English words that don't cloud the meaning of the Sanskrit word. So Dharma, the root is Dri. The Ri means the Ritam. So Dri means the essential nature of a thing, which if you take that away, it is no longer itself. This is a glass of water. It's liquid. If you take its essential nature away, it's no longer water. We are a Dharma culture. We are not a religion. A Dharma culture requires you must know the Ritam, you must know the Prakriti, you must know the Sanskrit precise terminology because it's a science. It's not a blind faith religion. So what we've actually caught is blind faith religious illiteracy. And we think we have to conform to the illiteracy of the English language to subvert the Sanskrit. And we don't think we have permission to insist that the people speaking English learn some Sanskrit words so we can explain ourselves to them. <clears throat> Do you see the problem? Yes. The, the entire Vedic civilization is still hesitant to teach a Sanskrit word to those it is trying to explain itself too. Now, now that brings it a very another important question as to why inability to train? Why not teach? You know, people have asked me this question in America uh, because in my interaction with people, when I share with them the way we are, what our philosophy stands for, I try to explain to them in their language so that they understand it, trying to break it, uh, instead of trying to complicate it, make it simpler. I believe in Einstein's slogan, Einstein's quote, that any intelligent fool can complicate a simple problem. It takes courage to move in the other direction. They all tell me one thing very common. Why the hell don't you tell us the beauty of your way of life? But that's based on science and technology. And I begin, have begun to feel, and I have said so before, and I say it again, the advances in science and technology, the knowledge which is happening, it is breaking the barriers of ignorance and fear and the gullibility of people who fell for the religious trope. How does this society, which has never done something, take that message forward? Or is it people like you, Dr. Elst, or, you know, for example, Dr. Foley, is it left for them to take the message? Because we are unable to do so because we don't know the either or language. We have forgotten Sanskrit and we don't know English. So this here's is a good, it's a great question, Vibhutiji. So here's a good answer that, that you don't have to know all of Sanskrit. 
you just have to introduce scientific vocabulary. Right. So you have to give about, let's just say in the Gita, I left about 120 words of Sanskrit in the verses. There is no English word for the Sanskrit word. So I left them in the verses. So to read the Bhagavad Gita and get to the first level of meaning, you must know at least a hundred Sanskrit words. And those Sanskrit words simply are irreplaceable. If you refuse to learn them, then you're too illiterate to answer the question you're asking. If the question is, what is the Vedic culture based on? What is the Hindu culture based on? The answer is the Vedic culture. What is the Vedic culture based on? The answer is Sanskrit. And what is Sanskrit based on? I explained it. It's based on something that is so precise that it can't drift away over time. Give me an example. Okay, now we're back to the Ritam. The same Ritam, which was borrowed by Greek, borrowed by Latin, then used in English. I'll give you an example. In the 11th century, most people have no idea where science came from in Western civilization. In the 11th century, a cave in Spain revealed a library of books that were in Arabic. They were a translation of Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, the disciple of Socrates. Socrates had two disciples, Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle went down the Jnana Sankhya road, and Plato went down the Vedanta road. So Plato is considered a theologian. Aristotle wrote many, many books on how to think scientifically. And he wrote them, of course, in Greek. Those were translated into Arabic. When the Moors, when the Muslims were in Spain, they left a cave, a cave library full of those books of Aristotle. 12th century, they were discovered. Then they were translated for the first time into English. And now there was a scientific revolution in Western civilization from Greek science because of Aristotle. Before that, there was no science to speak of. And that's because Christianity is a blind faith religion that has no interest in jnana whatsoever. It's against it. It's against knowledge. It's blind faith. Why? We only have one lifetime. Why? Well, because we're the soul. What is the soul? It's the soul, S-O-L. It's like the sun, but the sun burns out. So who are we really? Now, what's the Sanskrit word for who we really are? We, the individual who chose to come here to Prakriti, who are we? We're the Atman. So who do you know in the Hindu community that does that little conversation that says, we are the Atma? What does Atma mean? You can't cut it, burn it, break it. You can't destroy it. It means we chose to come here from Brahman. We will choose to go back. What is going back called? Bet, I bet you know. What is going back to Brahman called? Oh, I'm feeling the test, exact word. Moksha. Moksha, ah, oh, sure, of course. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm just throwing a lot of words at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you knew that you should be able to say to everyone, the Atma is who we are. Each one of us is an Atma. Not capital A, N Atma. We chose to come here. If we didn't choose to come here, we can't choose to go back, which is called moksha. So to just explain this segment, we are immortal beings visiting a temporary realm called prakriti, where everything is produced by inert substances that are unconscious, that are held together by chains of cause and effect. But we, our consciousness, is not emanating from that prakriti. It's emanated from Brahman. 
Now watch. So that's Briha, right? What English word did that give us? Oh, might be related. Brilliant. Briha? Brahman? What is brilliant? Brahman. Brilliant is just the English word for Brahman. For sunshine. For something shining. But its derivation is Brahman. So reverse the conversation. You cannot explain yourself as a Hindu without the words I just said. You say to the person, well, first of all, here's our worldview. We don't live just one lifetime. And the being who does not live just one lifetime is called the Atma, A-T-M-A. Your word atomic in English comes from it. It means you can't cut it, can't burn it, can't break it, can't kill it. So we're the unkillable Atma that can't be cut, can't be destroyed. And we're here for thousands and thousands and millions of lifetimes. We go through all the species and then we become human. And then graduating from being human is called moksha or going back to Brahman. How many people who are from India who consider themselves Hindus can explain that so simply? Do you see the problem? Yes. It needs to start with a very simple premise, but the difference between the Abrahamic religions and the Vedic culture is everything. Meaning, if you don't assert that you're an immortal being here for many, 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 many lifetimes. So they're born again Christians, but Hindus are born again and again and again and again and again and again Hindus. But that's what's missing in our world. The whole exploitive colonizing world is based on one lifetime. Everyone in Western civilization is in jail. It's a one lifetime jail. And in order to explain yourself as a Hindu, you simply have to say, we're an immortal being, we come from Brahman, we're called the Atma, and where we are is called Prakriti. And leaving here and going back to Brahman is called Moksha. There you go. <laughs> this was so simple. <laughs> Very this easy. Was so simple. It's just so easy. That's, that's right. That's right. Now, what is important, you earlier mentioned about uh, breathing in and breathing out, which is what life is all about, right? Uh, yeah. Spiritual, you mean? Spiritual. You mean that everything is spiritual? Spiritual, yeah. It's all about breathing? <laughs> now you also talked about the element of, uh, in Christianity, it is a one-time lifetime jail. But there is another thought that says that your external world is a reflection of what you are within. What is inside reflects outside. Now, it brings about a conflict in my mind in terms of understanding. Does it mean, as I understand about Christianity as much as I've tried to understand is, there are diktats, there are mandates, there are regimentations, both of them follow that. But the conflict in the world around today, it's very important to discuss that as well, because let me put it this way to you. This, this one hour or 50 minutes is not enough to dismantle the entire universe for understanding. What you have done today with in, in teaching people about the Sanskrit and the origins of the entire thing must encourage everybody to learn more about themselves. And I hope it does. So we will need many more conversations as we go forward from time to time. But the important part here is that if what we are inside is what reflects outside, happiness within, you know, you feel the whole world is happy. You know, if you are sad, the whole world feels sad. Do you think, it's a, it's a tough question to answer because we don't want to be branded as Islamophobic. Is Islam in conflict with itself that it is so much conflict outside? It's in conflict with everything else around it. Where do we well, fix it? It's not just Islam. It's actually all of these one lifetime people have become fanatics because they only have one lifetime. So first of all, they're frightened to death. That's the basis. Fear is the basis of the Abrahamic religions. 
And guess what the word pray means, to pray? Yeah. It's from the word precarious. It's not, it doesn't mean to chant mantras. When you chant mantras in Sanskrit, you're not praying because you're not afraid, because you know you can't die, because you're, you're an atma. So you're immortal. You're not doing it. Oh, don't send me to hell. You're saying, I want to be like you. It's not a prayer. Prayer is when you're afraid. Precarious is the basis of prey. That's why we call someone we're about to kill our prey. <laughs> That's right. I was about to say this. It's very yes. interesting that yes. the spelling for prey is P-R-A-Y, but the only people who pray are going to become prey, P-R-E-Y. And the predators are what the Abrahamics became because they weren't patient. They didn't have a many lifetime worldview. So when we do this, and say namaste, we're saying chill, relax, remember to stay balanced, remember dharma, remember to stay in alignment with the correct use of everything and see each other with respect. Remember, we're not the skin. Look at democracy so-called in America. They're still not over calling people their skin. They're still barely offering rights to women as if there shouldn't have been rights to women. But why are there no rights for women in Western civilization? Because there's no justification for feminine. And because Augustine, the Christian theologian, blamed our being here on Adam and Eve. And it was all Eve's fault because she's the one who's sexy. <laughs> yeah. It's the female's fault, isn't it? But this is the exact opposite of Bharat. In Bharat, what do we do twice a year when the crops are planted and harvested? Navaratri. Who are we honoring? Durga Ma. Who is Durga Ma? The original Mother Nature, female. Right. Other people say Mother Nature, we know her by name. Prathamam Shailaputri Chadvitiyam Brahmacharini Tritiyam Chandraganteti. We know her nine different personalities. So this is another thing that's completely missing in Western civilization. And we're embarrassed to talk about it as Hindus. At least I don't hear anyone talking about it. That we see the ultimate divine as masculine and feminine. Now, what does that do psychologically that's completely missing in Islam? Completely missing in abusive Islam. Completely missing in abusive Christianity. Why did women have to fight for their rights in Western civilization? Because Western civilization is barbaric. It has one brief lifetime. It's scared to death. They've scared the hell into them. They're praying because they're afraid. The whole thing is a mess. And being an insider-outsider, I can say this without sounding just like I'm being disrespectful. I'm being very respectful. I respect the person, the Atma, who's so lost in ignorance, in avidya. But they refuse to have a vocabulary to describe the problem. How can I diagnose it? without that vocabulary. So should we say that we are doing our Vedic prayers? Not again. I hope I never hear that again. Should we call Bhagavan God? You mean Bhagavan is the same as the smoke arising from the Vedic Yajna? That's all he is? Is just the smoke from the Yajna? Or is Bhagavan, Van, one who possesses Bhaga, six qualities that everyone desires to an unlimited degree. This is this is brilliant. And I, I wanted to tell people that, hey, we have five minutes remaining before we jump into Sanjay Dikshiti's very popular Ask Me Anything session. So if you have any questions, please ask, because this is not the not the last session with Jeffrey. I'm I'm inviting you 
as many times as we increase the frequency of our shows here. We are new, Jaipur Dialogue USA is with, has been started with an intent to reach out to the Western audiences. And that's why we c communicate in the language, which is not our own, which is English. It's funny, I mean, the way you have said uh, about it today. One thing which I wanted to ask here is that so much of villainy seems to have gone into the Abrahamic faith then. You know, it is it is a domination. The politics of domination is going on between uh, in the two religious faiths to dominate something that is truthful. I mean, this is you talked about uh, Brahma and uh, you know Adam and Eve and all that kind of stuff. You know, I I believe I have asked this question of my Christian friends that you live your life in guilt. We gave you the Kama Sutra. You are living a life of guilt because you have been inducted with the belief system that it was sin. And as you rightly said, Eve was to be blamed for that. Whereas in prakriti and procreation and everything else, man and woman were created by God. So how can you call a God's act of creation and creativity as an evil? And you live perpetually in guilt. That's what issues leads to people issuing passport and visas for heaven and hell. Where did that come about? Who created heaven? I've asked this question. Has anybody any report on how heaven, where life is better, heaven or hell? <laughs> Nobody says anything. It's all so confusing. You, you can make out that it has been designed to fool the gullible or the unknown, something that is not known. I'll give you one more English word you'll really enjoy. The word heaven. What does it mean? See, in the Vedas, we know that Svargaloka is level 10. And we're Bhumiloka, and that's level 8. And there are 14 Lokas, and Brahma is level 14. We're talking about the cosmos being stratified according to the dimensionality from which things are being enacted. So what about Earth? And so this one lifetime only dilemma is all pervasive and we do not have an understanding of multidimensionality. So the word heaven, everybody thinks they're using some kind of literate word, but it actually comes from the Scottish. In Scotland, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, the glaciers rubbed off all the topsoil. If you live in Scotland, it's quite a hard, quite a, a rough land for agriculture. And the only grain that grows there very, very well is oats. And oats uh, grow and they get yay tall. Then they come along with a tall wagon and a sickle and they cut them down. And then they take a pitchfork and they throw them up into the wagon. And that's called heaving the Avon, because the oats are called Avon. So heaving the Avon gives us the word heaven. Heaven means enough oatmeal for the winter. That's all it means. It's so ridiculous. I mean, I, mean, I did not know that. That's why... You know, it is wonderful to speak with you today to know the, where the origin of the word heaven comes from. What the hell is that? <laughs> the hell is the hull of a ship. So hell hull of a ship and hell is the same thing. Hell simply means a hole in the ground. That's all it means. The rest is Dante's Inferno. So a poet wrote an interesting poem about everyone being tortured and showed that as the place where people who don't do what they're told go to, they go to hell, which is a hole in the ground, which is the hull of a ship, which is the hold in the ship where the slaves were kept as they were brought from Africa. Now that was some kind of hell. <clears throat> Why we enslave people? All of these questions, but I know we're out of time. Yes. No, we will, we will have more conversation. We will have, uh, you know, because this, this learning needs to happen. I mean, today listening to you has made me feel so much proud about my existence, the way I am. 
and I'm inspired. I studied in Sanskrit as a single language in my school. I'm part of Hindi medium education, as many Indians are. And we had Sanskrit as a thing. So I do understand certain words. And I have not, I, I recognize one thing. I have told this to my Western audience, that the beauty of Sanskrit and the way derivative Hindi is that there is no sound. There is no sound on the planet Earth that can't be put in alphabets in Sanskrit. There's sound. English is a remarkably imperfect language because it is so controlled. There is no logic, no sense to spellings that are there. You know, people spell the names anyway, and then they give justification that the proper nouns are as you wish to pronounce, you can call it. Having said that, I wanted to thank you very much, Jeffrey, for joining. To all the viewers who joined today, and thank you very much. If you have questions, please ask. But I do see that there is some gentleman who had done a super sticker. Thank you very much for contributing. We are news, we are a new show. Support, like, share, and press the bell icon. And we will bring you more of Jeffrey Armstrong and others that we need to set the things right. <laughs> As the saying goes, with these words, I say thank you very much, Jeffrey. Thank you, Vibhuti, because an Acharya is one who teaches by example, and you are, by conducting this conversation, helping the entire Hindu community and the whole world to become awakened to these understandings. Yadyada charati shreshtas tata devi taro janaha sayat pramanam kurute lokas tadanuvartite. The whole world follows your example. Thank you. Om Shanti, Om Shanti. Shanti, Shanti. Press the bell icon on YouTube and don't miss another update.